I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. Mark, chapter 1. I'm going to read just two verses, verses 14 and 15. This is a little bit, of out, of, little bit out of sequence from our, our Mark sermon series. But this uh, really brings it all together for us. Mark, chapter 1. Verses 14 and 15. And we tremble as this is the very word of God. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Would you pray with me now? Almighty God, we ask you this morning to give us the most important gift that we could ever have, even faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, all of our distractions, all of our temptations, all of the things that would turn us away from Christ, we ask, Lord, that now, by your invincible power, that you would overcome all of those distractions and that you would draw us to Jesus Christ. Holy Father, we ask that in your compassion, that you would look upon our weakness and that you would show us Christ, that we would believe in him that we would take up our cross even this morning, that we would be reminded that following Jesus Christ means that we are not a friend of the world, that following Jesus Christ means that we are like Christ, and as they left Jesus, as we just sang, they will leave us too. Heavenly Father, give us the faith and the courage to follow Christ no matter what. We pray you'd fill us with your Spirit, that we would be Spirit-filled believers, that we would follow hard after your commands because we desire to do them, not because they are begrudging to us, but that we delight to do them. We delight to please you, Heavenly Father. And so make us that kind of people, an obeying people, a people who love you, a people who look in character like Jesus Christ, a people who are filled with the Spirit and have the fruit of the Spirit dominating our lives. And in doing this, Lord, we know that we live in a crooked and perverse generation. We know that it is hard to be a Christian in this era. We pray that you would thwart the schemes of Satan and the work of even demonic powers, to press all of us into its mold. We pray that you would thwart the efforts of those who would do evil and corrupting things to children, who would do evil and corrupting things even in our society here in Alberta and in Canada. We pray that their efforts would be thwarted and that righteousness would reign. We pray for our leaders, even in government, for Jody Gondek and Daniel Smith and Justin Trudeau, we pray that they would 
govern according to righteousness rather than according to wickedness. And we pray that you would thwart their efforts to promote ungodliness and that their efforts to promote what is in keeping with your word, that they would flourish. Lord, we ask, though, even for those three leaders, that they would repent of their sins and that we, they would join us in heaven for eternity. Lord, we don't want to see them going to hell for eternity. Lord, we do ask that you would continue to have the gospel sound forth from this church, from this pulpit, from the lips of the members in this church. Help us to be an evangelizing people, a, a people who are confident to share the gospel in our communities. We thank you that there are gospel-preaching churches in this city who are doing that very same thing. We pray that you would cause them to grow and flourish. We pray for Fairview Baptist Church and its upcoming conference. Pray for Pastor Tim Stevens. We pray that you would bless that church and use them as a light for the gospel in this city. Lord, we also think as well of Grace Cochran Church and Pastor Josh Carey. Meet their needs this morning. We pray that Josh would be able to herald your word and that the gospel would sound forth in the town of Cochrane. Lord, we see it a privilege here to be able to have baptisms this morning. We ask even as the candidates are getting ready to give their testimonies at the end of the service, we ask that those testimonies would be a means of grace to us, that your gospel would go forward from those testimonies and that many hard hearts that are here would melt that the hard hearts would turn from their sins and look to Jesus Christ alone, not looking to their own faith or looking to their own works, but looking to Christ. We pray that you'd even use those testimonies today. And Lord, now as we hear from your word, we pray that you would press us with the urgency to recognize that the time has come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So the question put to us this morning is, what time is it? What time is it? And you might be thinking, it's almost lunchtime. That's what your stomach says. Recently, my wife rearranged our living room decor, and we had a nice, big, large clock on the one wall. And uh, she moved it. And now I don't know what time it is. I keep looking over at, you know, this other paraphernalia on the wall, and, I, and I, it doesn't tell me what time it is. So then I'm forced to look at that dreaded phone because I don't have a watch. So I'm going to have to go buy a watch now. But we're always asking what time it is. What time is it? Not just in our days that are very tightly scheduled, but what time is it in this, this era, this, this time that we're living in? If you're a young person, you're just, you're just kind of getting going in your life. If you're an elderly person, you've seen a lot. You've seen changes in time. And it, it can be challenging even. How do, you, how do you measure time? Of course, 
praise God, we still measure even our years according to the life of Jesus Christ because it is 2023 A.D. Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. And even that testifies that Jesus is still alive. He's still alive. All other gurus, all other prophets, they're all dead. They're all, they're all done. Jesus is still alive, and so we still mark time by his risen life. That's how we measure time. But there is a lot, especially now, there's a lot of people who are trying to measure and, and evaluate, well, what time is it? Where are we at? Where are we at in history? Where are we at? Where, we have all these different stages and phases through history. One of the books that I've read is, a, is an analysis of the demographic cycles that come and go. And, and the thesis is that we are in what's called the fourth turning. And so it has then the collapse of various institutions and then the rise, hopefully after a revolution, a rise of, of then a new kind of expression of civilization. Now whether or not that's the case and whether or not that theory is valid, I'm not sure. It's not, definitely not as sure as God's Word. But there are elements where we're seeing the collapse of institutions. We can see that in our globalized world, what, what I've come to see is kind of this late American empire. We see signs of decline. In Canada, you might, here's, now the media is, is saying that we might be in the last stages of Justin Trudeau's liberal government. I'm, I'm not sure of that. I'll believe it when I see it. Uh, but, but is that what time it is? And you might be evaluating this. For a Christian, uh, you might be thinking, well, well how, how is it different now at this time than it was back, say, in the 1950s? Is it a different time that we're in? Aaron Wren, a, a commentator and pundit, he, I, I've shared this before in many different venues, but he has come up with this paradigm of three different worlds to describe three, three seasons of time. And it's, it's three worlds in which Christians are how they're viewed in society has changed. And before 1994, he said, we lived in a positive world. It was a positive world for Christians. Because if you were a Christian, it was generally a, a social positive to be a Christian in that society. And then from 1994 to about 2017, 2016, 2017, it was neutral. It was neutral. You know, people didn't think you were a monster. They didn't think you were so great, but you were just neutral. But since 2017, the perception of Bible-believing Christians is that, no, it's negative. You, you actually might be a threat. You, you actually, it's not just that you believe something that's wrong. You believe something that's dangerous. And that's the difference. So, so that could be the time that we're in when we ask the question, what time is it? Regardless of, of how we view these things, we have to consider God's view of time. Second Peter chapter 3 and verses 8 and following says, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day 
is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Well, we come to this question of what time is it? And we see God is outside of time. Regardless of how we view the times that we're in, we have to see that God is above, is above them. But then when we come to Mark 1.15, which is our subject text this morning, Jesus Christ said, the time is fulfilled. Or, if you will, the time has come. The time has come. And so we've got to ask, what time has come? What time has come? What time has come in the first century? And how does that affect us in 2023 AD, Anno Domini? And I would argue that whatever Jesus said in the first century, it abides and still is obligatory upon us because Jesus is still alive and He has given us His Word to govern us even to this day. So what time is it? If you are an elderly person, you're thinking, "Eh, there's not a whole lot of time left. If you are a young person, you think, oh, I got all the time in the world. I I got time to do that. I got time to go to school. I got time to get married. I got got time for all that stuff. I got lots of time. Why worry about today? Worry about tomorrow. If you're a parent and you've got a child, maybe an adult child, who's straying from the Lord, and you're in angst and agony about them, and you might be praying, you might be saying, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? Or you might have a, have a long-term illness, and the time just seems to grind on so slowly. And you're saying, how long, O Lord? You're, you're wanting, when, when is this time going to end? And I have a different experience, a different time to come. So that's where then this idea of time, it's not just for the philosophers. It's not just for the theologians. It's for, it's for how you're trying to get through your very week. How you're trying to cope is the time that you're in. But when Jesus says the time is fulfilled, he's saying something very specific. He's saying the time has come and he has come around. He is on the scene. If we consider what time is it, we have to consider the time is fulfilled. The time has come. This idea, he says, the time is fulfilled. It is filled up. It is full to the brim. So that implies that it has been filling all the time. It's filling as you go, full, fuller and fuller and fuller and fuller and fuller. And finally, the cup is full and overflowing. It is fulfilled. It is full and it is filled. It is fulfilled. And he's saying that event has occurred right there and then in his ministry. But what has been filling up? And what I'd like to do is just make reference to a number of key passages in the Old Testament 
that anticipated the day when this, would, this anticipation would all be filled up. And it is the anticipation of promises coming to pass. So for example, and you can turn to these or you can just listen along. In Genesis chapter 3, what was called, some by, someone called the first preaching of the gospel in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, God said, I will put enmity between you, that is the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Even in fact, this one, the seed of the woman, prophetically anticipated, would come and would crush the head of the serpent anticipated way back in Genesis chapter 3 that there was hope. Even though people had sinned, Adam had sinned, and all subsequent people sinned and transgressed against God, there was hope that the seed of the woman would come at the right time. And that the time would be fulfilled. Later on, the people of Israel in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 18, Deuteronomy chapter 18, God told them, even though they had this amazing prophet, this this Moses who led them out of captivity, well, Moses, what happens when Moses dies? What then? And God told Israel in, in Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15, He said, The Lord, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brother, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So, again, there's going to be a time that will come when it's all, time is all filled up, and then there's going to be a prophet like Moses raised up, and everybody was supposed to listen to him. So that was part of that filling. Filling up. There's waiting for this time to come. Then, in 2 Samuel... 2 Samuel chapter 2, 2 Samuel, Second Samuel chapter 7, I said chapter 2, I don't know why, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7 in his covenant, this is a covenant God establishes with David. He says to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 12, When your days are fulfilled, so there's time. In other words, your days are fulfilled. In other words, when you're dead. It's a nice way of saying you're dead. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Okay? So David's going to have an heir to the Davidic kingdom. But listen to this. This heir, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom for five years, for ten years, for twenty years, for fifty years. No, he says... I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
So that's why all the heirs of David didn't fulfill this prophecy. Because there's all kinds of them. A whole bunch of them. But there would be an heir of David who would fulfill this prophecy and his throne, the throne of his kingdom, would be established forever. That's, again, this this anticipation that there would be time filling up, filling up, filling up, filling up, filling up, and then there would be an heir of David, and that heir of David would have his throne established forever and ever and ever. And there was no previous Davidic king, no previous son of David that was able to fulfill that. But we're seeing then this, this growing fulfillment, building and building and building. Then in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 42, Isaiah chapter 42, and I'm not, this isn't an exhaustive survey here, but This is actually, if you're not familiar with the Bible, I'm giving you kind of some real highlights that are pointing towards the fulfillment of the promises. But in Isaiah 42, in what was called the servant songs, these prophecies about this coming servant who would come in time and this servant who would fulfill God's purposes, then it says in Isaiah 42, picking up in verse 6, God says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. Now, he's referring to this servant figure. This servant. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. You, the servant. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people. Now that, what that means is not just that God is going to make a covenant, an agreement with the peoples. He's actually going to provide both sides of the covenant. He's going to provide that in the person of the servant. So in other words, God's going to fulfill all the covenant responsibilities. He's going to do it from first to last. And He's going to provide it by providing His own servant. It's one of the most remarkable passages in the whole Bible that there's a prophecy that Jesus, who is the servant, would fulfill the terms of the covenant himself. Some of you are still trying to fulfill the terms of the covenant all the time. And you're not realizing, no, Jesus is the covenant given to us. He's given as a covenant for the people. A light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And then he says this, thinking of this time. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare before they spring forth. I tell you of them. One of the distinctive features of the true God, the God of Israel, the God whom Christians believe and who who we proclaim, is that He makes promises. So He tells you about stuff that's going to happen in the future. And He guarantees it, and it happens. There's no other religion that can guarantee that. All of it's flawed. All of it's fake. 
They can't keep promises. Whereas our God is a promise-keeping God. That is a key. And so when Jesus is saying the time has come, the time has fulfilled, he's saying the prophecies, the promises, the anticipation, it's all coming together right now. The time has come. And so it's kind of like he's saying, yeah, the house is built. The serpent's head is crushed. The man has arrived. Or in the Johnny Cash way, the man has come around. If you don't know that song, too bad. You're, you're missing out. You just had to have one Johnny Cash reference in there. And so this is, this is what's been fulfilled is all of these promises, and there are more. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. It's all in Him. It's all coming on this flow, this massive timeline, and it is filling up in this massive cup. It's all fulfilled right then and there and overflowing. So in Mark 1.15, Jesus says, He can say very confidently as He Notice, he's proclaiming the gospel of God and he's starting his ministry and he says the time is fulfilled. He's not saying it's going to be. He says it is now. It is fulfilled now. And then he says the kingdom of God is at hand. So specifically, he's saying how is this filled up? The kingdom of God that everybody's been anticipating The kingdom of God from 2 Samuel 7, the anticipation of this Davidic king, the kingdom has come. The kingdom has come. The kingdom is at hand. It's here. It's it's on the scene. And so then, there are then terms in which then the Apostle Paul, for example, will use then that arrival of the kingdom and show what it was like before the kingdom arrived and what it's like after the kingdom of kingdom arrived. So in Galatians chapter 4, in Galatians chapter 4, Paul says, and again, this is one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 1 talks about those who although they might be entitled to everything, they're still subjected to a sort of slavery. And speaking, thinking about the Jews, for example, under the Old Covenant who had all these promises. They they have all these promises. He'll make the same argument in Romans, but they have these promises. He says in Galatians 4.1, he says, I mean that the heir, the heir of an inheritance, the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. I'd like to survey some of the teenagers here and see if they ever feel like slaves in their own home. Kids aren't allowed, they're not even going to laugh because they're scared of maybe what the parents might think if it was true confession. It's like, oh, do I got to do this again? But that's somehow, that's sometimes how kids feel. And in the Roman world, it was definitely like that. So this heir, you can think of a royal heir. As long as he's a child, he's no different from a slave, though he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Notice the time. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved.
to the elementary principles of the world. Those are this, that's the hostile world system. But notice verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come. So that's an event. That's a moment when the fullness of time had come. What, what happened? God did something. He sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. So that, so He's sending the Son, born of the Virgin Mary, born under the law. He's obedient under the law, the Jewish law. All of that to redeem those who were under the law, because the law couldn't save you. And it's so that we might receive adoption as sons. Being brought into God's family. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You're an inheritor. You have the inheritance. And because Christians have not understood the distinctiveness of what God has done in fulfilling the time, in the fullness of the time, they have not realized that you are no longer a slave, but a son. You're an heir. You're an heir of all things. You have all these extensive privileges. And you kind of slink around thinking, oh, God's always mad at me. He's always, he's never happy with me. It's not true. It's not true. Because he has given you everything. And you can call out Abba Father because he's your father. Our father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. He's our Father. He's Jesus' Father, but He's our Father. And so from slavery to sonship, this is what happens when the kingdom has come. It actually confronts us so that if you believe in Jesus Christ, you are brought from slavery to being a son of the King. That is the great privilege of the Gospel. And so Galatians 4 is speaking about those Christians, and we're going to have testimonies from a number of them at the end of the service, those people who in believing in Jesus Christ have moved from being under God's just wrath to now being under His saving grace. They have moved from being over here to over here. And it's not because they're so clever, although they might be smart. It's because they're trusting in Christ alone. They're trusting in what Christ has brought with his kingdom. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1 has another statement about this time. Long ago, it says in Hebrews 1, 1, long ago in a galaxy, no, no, it's not that one. It shows shows how much we've all been pressed into somebody else's mold, actually. Long ago, at, what does it say? At many times, times throughout biblical history, all the way through, at many times, in many ways, sometimes, sometimes from God's direct speech, sometimes 
God speaking through the prophets, sometimes through, through things that have been written down, some, sometimes through different events. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But what about now that the time has come? Now that the time is fulfilled? He says, verse 2, But in these last days, did you know that we're in the last days? You said, yeah, of course we are. Look at how bad it is in the world. Yeah, but this is in the first century. He's saying, in these last days, in the first century, here the last days then, it's the last days now. In these last days, He has spoken to us, how? By His Son. His Son, notice, remembering Galatians 4, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. This is the one. He has spoken to us by His Son. And that's how we know. The time is fulfilled. The time has come. Because He has spoken to us by His Son, by the heir. Now we know. And Jesus is saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has drawn near. In other words, the Son is on the scene. The Son is here. You're not waiting for the next one. It's one of the problems with Islam, among many things, is that Jesus came and then they're still waiting for the next one. It's the problem with contemporary Judaism. The Messiah came and they're still waiting for a Messiah. No, He has come. He has come. The time is fulfilled. Now it's how do we deal? What are we to deal with with this one who has come? But let's not act as if He hasn't come. Even consider, you know the verse, but do you know the context? John 3.16. John 3.16. For God so loved the world, which is not that He really, 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 really loved the world, although that's true, but it's, this is the manner of His love. And so you could say, for in this manner God loved the world, that He gave His only Son. In that gift, that's an event in time, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, so that's a promise, but have eternal life. That's a promise. Now, if He can't keep promises, this gospel's no good. So, if you don't think He can keep promises, don't bother. But if He's a promise-keeping God, and He promises that whoever... No pre-qualification. Whoever believes in Him, well, you're not going to perish. You're not. You're going to actually possess, have eternal life. If you have that, well, then it is your possession. But notice verse 17 and following. What nobody reads. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. Oh, isn't that good to know? but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Oh, there's, there's this opportunity for people to be saved through Christ, through the coming of Christ. Why? Whoever believes in Him, verse 18, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. 
And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You see, if you're not believing in Jesus Christ, you're condemned already. My family has had a discussion about some interactions with some other people recently, and the question was put to one of my family members, and the, and the guy said, do you, so do you think I'm going to hell? And one of the family members said, yes. I mean, I mean you couldn't have said anything more offensive today. But then... I, as we discussed it, I said, the, the truth is, we're all going to hell. We're all going to hell. Me too. I'm going to hell. Unless, unless there's been some type of escape, some type of refuge. But it's not that I'm getting myself out of hell. I'm going to hell, and you are too. The only way I'm getting out of hell is if I cling to this Christ who says, he came to save. And there is a window of time, of opportunity to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's there for you. It's right here. Are you going to wait till tomorrow? What's going to happen on the drive home? You don't know. Heart attack, car accident. You don't know. You've got time right now. Are you believing in Jesus Christ? Because that is your deliverance. Not somehow that, well, I've got a nice notion that I'm not going to hell. We're all going to hell. Unless we're trusting in Christ. Unless we're trusting in Him. We're fleeing from the wrath to come. We're fleeing to Jesus. And that's why I can even say it. And you know, I wouldn't normally put it like that. But I can say that I'm going to hell unless... I'm trusting in one who can deliver me from hell. And I'm not dead yet, so I don't know, but I'm trusting in his promises. I'm trusting in his promises for my life beyond the grave. And that's why I believe it. And that's why I have confidence, because I have confidence in Jesus. And that's why I know there is life beyond the grave. So that becomes then the recognition of what happens when this king comes on the scene. But as you know, this king was not welcomed. Oh yes, he was welcomed briefly. You, you know in Mark chapter 11, the triumphal entry. Jesus came on a donkey, enters Jerusalem as kind of this, this Davidic heir. And everybody's cheering him. And they say, Hosanna! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Hey, the time has come. This is our guy. We've been waiting for him. Here is this Davidic warrior, this son of David. Kick out these Romans. We can't vote them out, so we've got to kick them out. Right? Might be some of our sentiments sometimes with our politicians. Yet this kingdom and its king would be different because as Isaiah 53 prophesied, this servant 
this servant king. It says, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. There was nothing in him that attracted us to him. He was despised and rejected by men. Verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. You know what it means to esteem him that way? You're saying, he deserved it. Yeah, that guy's getting what's coming to him, that guy. And that's how people are. That's how you are, apart from the grace of God. You're like, nah, the guy, he deserved it. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And so then the kingdom that has come is the rule of this tragic king, as it were, turned to a triumphant king through his resurrection from the dead. Now if the king triumphs, if the king fulfills his destiny, if the king is the man come around, then how do you approach him? And and how you go about that, it's not really optional anymore. But it's obligation. If the king has come, if the time is fulfilled, you can't just like, yeah, I'll deal with that later. You are obligated to deal with him. You either have to go to him or flee him. There's only two kinds of people in this world. Those that are going to Christ and those that are fleeing Christ. But the time has come because the man has come and so Jesus says, in Mark 1.15, He says, Repent and believe in the gospel. And that's it. It's time for a response. It's time for a response because the news is out. The time is fulfilled. That's the news. That's what Jesus is announcing. He's announcing news. The time is fulfilled. All that you've anticipated, now is the time. I'm letting you know. Broadcasting the news. I know we don't trust the news anymore. I don't trust the news anymore. You, never, you don't know what's going on. But Jesus, he's saying, well, it doesn't matter. You, this is the news you need to pay attention to. The time is fulfilled now. You need to know that that event is happening now. The time has come. The man is here. The king has arrived. And so then he says, then his first command, there's two commands here, repent and believe. The first command is repent. Repent. The Greek word metanoia. You might even have heard it. It's the idea of literally changing one's mind. Having your mind set on one course and changing it in the opposite direction. It's illustrated in those Bible stories that you may know from examples like the prodigal son. The prodigal son. He went and wasted all of his inheritance in Luke 15. And yet he had this this metanoia, this change of mind, because he he was so low and he's eating the pig feet. He's a Jew eating pig feet. It's really, really bad. And he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough? 
more than enough. And he started realizing, oh, okay, what, what am I doing here? And he had a metanoia, and he went back to his father's house. Or the tax collector in Luke 18, 13, who, he's not like the religious people. He, he, he has no claims on being religious, and he just, he bows his head, he won't even lift up his eyes, and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He just, just humbly owns up to where he is before the king. That's a turn of mind to admit that. Or even David himself in Psalm 51 and verse 4, when he said, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in, in your sight. It's not just that I've offended these people and hurt these, you know. I've actually offended you and you only with all that stuff. And him owning that is admitting, yes, I did all that, but I'm coming to you for forgiveness and atonement. See, this metanoia, this repentance, it's being honest about what you deserve. That's why I say we're all going to hell. The question is, are you fleeing to Christ and holding fast to Christ? But then you see the goodness of God offered to you. Because this repentance, be very clear about this, this is not about feeling guilty. There is guilt. If you sin, there's guilt. There's no about it. But this, that's not what repentance is. Repentance is not about feeling, feeling, feeling really, 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 really bad. There's lots of people here, that's what they think repentance is. Oh, I just got to beat myself up. No, that's, that's not repentance. It's not feeling guilty before God only. There is guilt. But godly repentance is seeing the goodness of God. Romans 2.4 says, it is the kindness of God meant, that is meant to lead you to repentance. When you see what you deserve, and then you see, why is God being so good to me? Why is he being so kind to me? And it's like, oh, what have I been doing? Why have I been chasing all that stuff? I need a metanoia. It's just like, look at the goodness that he's given. I mean, I'm such an idiot. Right? That's the metanoia. That's the change of mind. That's the repentance. It's the good news. You see the goodness of God offered. It's the good news. And you, you, do, you turn from your sin, but you turn to it. I want this. It's not just I feel bad about bad stuff I've done. I want, no, I want this goodness. I want the beauty of Christ. I want all of this kindness and generosity of Him. Repentance is not penance. This is a Protestant church. This is not a Roman Catholic church. We do not teach penance. Penance is a lie. It's a lie. And if, you've got, if you're Roman Catholic here, come talk to me afterwards. Penance is a lie. Penance is part of a guilt machine. It's great for establishing control of people. But it is a guilt machine. Repentance is not perpetual guilt groveling. It is not guilt groveling, but it is grace grabbing, if you will. 
to use my alliteration, just practicing my preacher skills here. I can guarantee, if I, if I indexed all your weeks, I can guarantee you've probably been guilt groveling. Oh, well, you know, you need to be grace grabbing. Oh, your undeserved favor. Oh, Lord, thank you. Oh, yes. I, I'm, I am guilty, but I'm not groveling in that because I'm too busy holding on to grace, cherishing grace, loving grace, thanking God for grace, loving the face of Christ that is a face full of grace. When you believe then in the good news, you actually then believe. You, you trust. Now believing, you're repenting, yes? You're turning metanoia from, you're turning from sin and you're turning to God in His goodness. But it's also believing in Him. And generally, I was just talking, or actually, no, I didn't do it in the class. I was talking with my son on the way up. We were talking about faith, like believing. What is believing? Well, it involves three things. It involves knowledge. You've got to know what you're believing in. It involves assenting to that knowledge, actually affirming, yes, actually, what I know, what I've been taught, it actually is true. I, I agree with it. And this is what we teach the kids. We want to teach them the Bible stories, the gospel stories, and we want them to be able to assent and say, yeah, I, th- this is true. You say, did Jesus rise from the dead? They say, yeah, Jesus rose from the dead. So they assent to that. The challenge is then the third piece is trust. Am I actually me, myself, personally, am I paroling all the weight of my life upon this Christ and on Him alone? Not on him and my penance. Not on him and the priestly system. Not on him and my performance. Not on him and even, I'm not even having faith in my faith. Which is another false gospel that the prosperity preachers teach. You need to have faith in your faith. I don't trust my faith. My faith is weak. Trust in Jesus. You roll your faith upon him. I just rest on him. And when you do that, there is then that great exchange, and that is what we talked in Sunday school in my class. My sin that I have that I've got to get rid of goes on to Christ. What I lack is righteousness. Christ has it. I need it because I can't, I can't fulfill God's demands. I just can't do it. His righteousness gets credited to my account. And there's this exchange. And Jesus died for my sins and got the full weight of the punishment that I deserved for my sins. And he took it and he died and that's how I know he took it. But then I have this great privilege of being accepted by God. I have, I have this acceptance by God on the basis of the righteousness of Christ. It's amazing. And so as I conclude, we have these baptisms. We're going to hear these testimonies shortly. These folks, they are obeying Jesus by showing and declaring that personally in their hearts they're repenting of their sins and they're believing in the good news. That's what these baptisms are about. And so that command still stands. These candidates are responding to that command. It's not man-centered. 
for them to respond. It's actually God-centered for them to obey God. It's all oriented to God. Some people say, oh yeah, Baptists, it's all man-centered. No, no, no. It's not man-centered. It's all about God. It's obeying Him. But personally, just as some Jews obeyed and some didn't and some Gentiles obeyed and some didn't, for each one of you here, each individual in each pew, all the way along, 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 each person, each individual here, each one of you is put to it. Will you personally respond to the fact that the man has come around, that the time has come, and that he commands you, there's a command of obligation on you that you repent and believe the gospel? There's no wiggle room after you leave here. There's not saying, oh, I didn't know. I did, sorry, I didn't know. No, you know. Then it's like, no, I'm, I'm choosing not, I, I'm just straight out rejecting Jesus. It's not that, well, I'm kind of in the mushy middle. No, you're, you're rejecting Jesus. Let's just let's be clear about it. Baptism, then, is the oath of allegiance to the king. And that's what we're declaring. But for everyone, like I say, it is time now. It's time now to believe in him. Today. And I would just close with this. The offer to you is that you can never be more loved than you are loved by God right now if you believe in Him. You can never be more loved because He loves you with the very love of Jesus Christ. He, the Father loves you with the same love He has for Christ and it's not based on your performance. You can't be loved more, more than that. You have this beautiful, infinite love poured out upon you. It is a gospel of love, and it is on offer to anyone whosoever would believe. Will you believe it? The time has come now. Will you believe it today? Let's pray together. Almighty God, we ask that in these next few moments, you would encourage our hearts as we see people who have believed in you, and they see it as a gift from your hand, not by their own generation, but because you have granted it. Oh Lord, I pray that you would glorify yourself through the testimonies of these people as we worship and sing and as we celebrate in the waters of baptism. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.